0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude, it's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit canduwealth.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's Politics Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor. And Isabel Hardman, who as well as being The Spectator's assistant editor, is the author of Fighting for Life, the 12 Battles That Made Our NHS and the Struggle for Its Future. And the NHS is going to be the subject of today's podcast. The NHS turns 75 next week on the 5th of July. So Isabel, I wanted to come to you first. Is it a birthday worth celebrating?
0: I think it's a, an awkward birthday um, and the NHS, I know, have had to work out how much to do they've tried very carefully not to do much that's sort of corporate for I think obvious reasons there have been a number of events throughout the NHS's history where it's had to do things in a way that's appeared that it hasn't spent any money on them and um, including actually the design of its logo which is one of the most successful brands in the world and um, but that the brief was don't look as though we have spent any money on this and um, and that's the same for this birthday celebration you know there's there's lots of stuff that seems kind of organic like there's i'm sure kate's really looking forward to the park run for the nhs <laughs> next weekend and there's a you know it's the service at westminster abbey and um, there's an np's anniversary run but they're only running 4k and i haven't got to the bottom of why um, why not 75? <laughs> why not five? I mean, is that extra kilometre really going to kill them? So there's there's lots of, you know, sort of community-based or seemingly community-based things going on. And we've also had the publication of the workforce plan this week to tie in with the 75th anniversary. Uh, Rishi Sunak and Steve Barclay slightly overblowing it by saying this is one of the most historic moments since the creation of the NHS, although it is, you know, it is a big deal. Um but uh, but it is difficult because it's in the middle of, I think, having gone through the 75 years, the worst, the most existential crisis um, that it's been in. And it has lurched from crisis to reform, from crisis to reform. But this really is the point at which I think the British public have the lowest satisfaction. They still very much support the principles of the NHS. But waiting lists are big, waiting lists are long, you know outcomes are not good although there's lots of debate about whether they would be better if there was more spending and the workforce are if not on strike hugely demotivated and feeling you know really undervalued and and insulted um after three really you know tricky years of their of their working lives so i wouldn't say that many people in the health service at the moment are sort of sitting back with a smile of great
2: satisfaction on
0: their faces
1: Kate, okay, well says that it's an awkward birthday for the NHS. What do you think?
2: It's certainly awkward. It's really difficult to celebrate. I would say it's been difficult to celebrate for quite some time. Uh, I remember the 70th birthday under Theresa May where the NHS got this huge injection of cash, one of many to come, even before COVID, and everybody was celebrating it as if it were the envy of the world. And it wasn't then, and it isn't now. It hasn't been for, for a very long time. It is worth marking essentially the the invention of universal access to healthcare as isabel says people are people still really value that principle and quite rightly so the difficulty for anybody who wants to celebrate the nhs on that principle is that basically the entirety of the developed world has adopted that principle. The outlier is the United States of America, which makes it such a bad comparison to anything that the UK would ever want to emulate or adopt. But, you know, most developed countries have universal access to healthcare now. But they looked at the NHS system, they thought good principle, bad outcomes. And virtually nobody has adopted the same system. And so I think the, the real question next week is going to be, what are we celebrating? Because if you want to celebrate those principles, that's great. But look at France, look at Switzerland, look at South Korea, look at Australia, look at New Zealand. We can celebrate that there too. And if you look at what the NHS is now doing for its staff and for its patients, it's a far grimmer story to tell. And uh, I think that is why celebrating anything next week is going to prove so difficult.
1: Isabel, the beginning of the subheading of your book is the 12 battles that made our NHS. Can you talk us through some of those and how we got to this point where the NHS isn't in such a fit state? Are these historic problems that have built up over time? Are they recent issues? Are they embedded in the structure of the health service?
0: The NHS is the size of a small nation and it's had so much going on that a comprehensively chronological history would not necessarily keep you reading, um, and so I've broken it up into these these moments that define it, that explain how we've got to where we are today, as opposed to you know where things ended up by 1965 or something like that. Um, so, first few chapters are on uh, healthcare before the NHS, uh, the battle to set it up, the early years, the immediate fights over money. Um, with the Treasury. And then I think lesser known eras in the NHS's history. So um, the hospital plan, uh, which is when actually we started to see the development of the modern District General Hospital and the closure of cottage hospitals, which was masterminded by none other than Enoch Powell, uh, something I don't think many modern readers know about that we only know really about Enoch Powell for one thing. And, you know, that's his fault. But uh, but, but it's it's been really interesting revisiting that. Uh, and then the scientific and medical advances of the 70s against the backdrop of huge strife and almost the health service going backwards as Barbara Castle tried to cut out some of the um, the private practice within the health service. 1980s was absolutely fascinating. So that was looking at, obviously, the big reforms of the Thatcher years, so the introduction of proper management in the NHS as a result of Roy Griffiths from Sainsbury's His Review, the introduction of the internal market by Ken Clark, but also whether Thatcher really wanted to shut the whole thing down and go down a, a more sort of um, you know private insurance route and why she didn't, which we can get onto in more detail. Uh, I also looked at the AIDS epidemic, and in earlier, in an earlier chapter, um, the I suppose the sexual revolution, but part of that also is reforms in maternity and so on, um, or, or lost as the case may be. And then getting to more recent times, um, there's a chapter on the Blair years, and that was really the last big crisis for the NHS where it looked as though the British public might start to withdraw consent for it. Then we had absolute delight of telling readers about the Lansley reforms the reorganization that was not a reorganization but highly necessary and also in reality a complete waste of political capital and time followed by the mid-staff scandal um and then we get to COVID um and a final chapter on the future so I mean it, it in one of those books that experienced a great deal of growth uh, in its size um, and is is much bigger than I'd intended, uh, I suppose, quite like the NHS.
1: Kate, I wonder if I could ask you two things. Do you think that um, it's necessary that when you're charting the history of the NHS, that it's always going to be with with an institution of its size, that it's always going to be um, defined by the battles and the challenges and the troubles that it faces? Because it's just, as Isabel says, it's the size of a small country. It's always going to inherently run into these problems. And also, secondly, how important do you think that final battle that Isabel mentions COVID was in shaping the NHS that we have at the moment?
2: To your first question, yes. um, I mean, this is one of the major problems with monopolies. And, you know, make no mistake, the National Health Service is a monopoly in healthcare. It's one of the biggest employers in the world. It's It's of course going to come across some major hurdles, but that is a political choice that the UK has made. It does not have to be so unaccountable. It does not have to be so bureaucratic. It has been a decision to have one of the most centrally run, not just funded, but centrally run healthcare systems in the world. So I think a lot of those troubles that have come its way have very much been of a political making and and, and, and a a, a choice that's been made on, on the part of MPs. COVID has been a vital moment in the history of the nhs it was struggling before we were losing thousands of people every year to the system not to their illness which is estimated on other systems uh, they would have fared much better but to the system itself post-covid you have seen waiting lists go from about 4 million to now 7.4 million on nhs england alone and rising you have seen the wait list for ambulances skyrocket there are the general sense now is if you want to see your gp if you want to see a consultant, it is going to be a battle, and a lot of people out there assume it's a battle that they're going to lose. Turning the NHS into the national COVID service, we can now see from a report from the King's Fund just this week, was a huge error. Yes, operations across every developed economy dropped during 2020. But the extent to which they dropped in the UK has been such a big outlier. And that backlog is now going to be with us for years. As Isabel mentioned, satisfaction with the NHS is at an all-time low um, because you can praise a universal system all you want, but it's quite crucial uh, in a universal system that you get seen. And that is something that so many people are struggling with now. And I think Isabel is completely right in her assessment that this is the, this is the biggest challenge that the nhs has faced yet not just because so many people were asked to stay home so many people had their services postponed and so many people have been affected but because there is no Obvious solution that solves this in a relatively short window of time. We've had the government's workforce plan, their update. You know, they've abandoned any talk about making things right soon. We're now talking about the next 15 years. You can welcome long term engagement and long term planning, but that is not going to satisfy people who've been waiting over a year for really quite crucial service. So at this point, between the Labour Party and the Tory Party, I would say no one's put forward a real plan that's going to make people feel confident that they're ailments going to be treated in the new, in the near future.
1: Isabel, how um, important do you think the COVID battle was in in shaping the NHS that we have today? And do you think that politicians have even begun to grasp that, have even started to come up with proper solutions to, to improve its situation?
0: I mean, I think to a certain extent, COVID has been a bit of a useful excuse for politicians who don't want to acknowledge that, a lot of the problems we're already building. So it's not like COVID created the workforce crisis. That had been very clear um for a long time prior to this. It's not like COVID created the social care crisis, but it certainly shone a light on the fact that our arrangements for social care in this country are just, uh, as Matt Hancock said this week at the COVID inquiry, terrible. And it didn't actually create the backlogs or the failure to meet targets. Uh, the A&E waiting target had been consistently missed I think since 2015. So the health service was already heading in a very bad direction prior to the pandemic. Now obviously the pandemic made a lot of that worse but as I mentioned with social care it also highlighted some of the ways in which policymakers should be moving. Now social care obviously isn't part of the NHS but it has a huge impact on the efficiency of the health service, the ability of patients to move through the system or indeed avoid the system altogether because what they really require is decent dignified at home or in a nursing home care but also there's other you know aspects i think the preventive agenda is becoming something that politicians are talking a lot more about whether they're actually prepared to make the the reforms the rebalancing uh, both within the the healthcare context but also within the within wider society is is a completely different question and also the the way in which we treat people with complex conditions and workforce needs so I, I think that you know covid has made things a lot worse it's it's left the the workforce really traumatized and they haven't had a chance to have a break yet and that was one of the things that really struck me when i was doing the covid chapter that i interviewed frontline doctors some of whom had treated the you know the first covid patients or the first covid deaths and i was interviewing them two years after all of this had happened. And when I said, have you had a break? They all said very dryly, well, define a break. And it turned out they'd had like a week off here and there. Now, I think most listeners to this podcast will know that if you take a week off, or maybe this is just me, you take a week off, you tend to spend the first half of your week still stressed about work and the second half doing your laundry. And you don't actually have very much chance to to wind down or to process the fact that you have seen far more than you're even used to as a medic in your job the thing that they all kept saying to me was that they found it so hard telling people that they were going to die but that they couldn't say goodbye face to face to their relatives and that they would have to say goodbye over a blurry FaceTime connection and that there was nothing at that stage that they could do Um, and so even that you know that was outside even their sort of boundaries of what is normal for for being an intensive care or an infectious diseases doctor. So it has left really deep scars on the health service. And the workforce plan that we've had announced this week is definitely a step towards showing that some of the issues are being recognised. But I was at a conference a few months ago where people from NHS trusts, very much on the management side of things, were saying that they'd had colleagues who'd complained about unsafe staffing within their NHS trust, who'd then been told they needed to go on resilience training, as though actually what they really needed uh, was just some greater mental toughness and then they could imagine some more colleagues on their ward where there were actually vacancies. So I, I don't think that the problem is being grasped to the full extent um, that it demands.
1: And Isabel, in your book you say that the you say the accusation that the Tories are quietly privatising the NHS is something of a political chimera. And you mentioned at the beginning of your first answer about Margaret Thatcher's attempts to introduce an insurance model. Can you talk us through kind of the story of times when the NHS's fundamental model of it being free to all has come under threat?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is sort of something that I find hilarious, is that the political debate in this country is about something that's, genuinely not happening to the NHS and you know you get entire books and entire sets of I love the NHS pens sold off the back of the idea that it is secretly being privatised when it really really isn't and of all the problems the NHS has privatisation is not it and it's you know if, if you're a campaigner who claims to care about the health service you're doing it a great disservice by focusing on this thing that isn't actually happening. The level of private provision within the health service is really low at the moment. I think, it, you know, it's, it's in single figures in terms of percentages. And, it's, you know, the use of private sector to offer further capacity is something that actually, when you think about it, is what I personally think is quite hard to argue against because it means that somebody gets their hip replacement sooner and then they can get on with their lives. So, you know, fine if you want to argue against that, but you also need to confront what the consequences of that would be. But in terms of the, the Tories' relationship to the NHS, it's, it's really fascinating charting that because they obviously, you know, they did oppose the second reading and report stage, third reading of um, the bill that set up the health service in the 1940s. But they had already put forward their own proposals. Back in 1943, the health minister, Henry Willink, published a white paper in the, in the war government that was following up Beveridge's plan for a welfare state. Now, the Willink plan was, I think most people agree, was confused, uh, probably wouldn't have lasted very long and was a bit of a mess because he was trying to please everyone, which is generally the route to pleasing no one. But it's not fair to say the Tories opposed a National Health Service. They opposed um, what was, you know, a very state-controlled, nationalised hospitals, uh, National Health Service as conceived by Nye Bevan. So they've always had this very torture relationship with the national health service because it wasn't the design they wanted um which you know that's politics but then you see this amazing divergence within the conservative debate so for you know the rest of the nhs's history conservatives and people in the conservative ecosystem have been saying we need to get rid of the nhs now is the point to get rid of the nhs and our friends the institute for economic affairs um is still arguing that and they were enraged back in the 1960s when uh, Enoch Powell just to mention him again because um, I do think he was one of the sort of big figures of the health service regardless of other things that he did he was appointed health minister and told the express that he wasn't interested in the ideological debate about whether you know to get rid of the NHS and do something else he said that British people want it so he was going to get on with the job and the IEA wrote to him saying, you've comforted our enemy. And they were really upset because they thought he would be somebody who would make the case uh, for big reforms. And instead, he was interested in building hospitals. So another figure, Ian McLeod of, of 1950s, had a very similar view that actually there was a mandate for the NHS. So the Conservatives just needed to, to work within that. So there's, there is this divergence. You get to Margaret Thatcher, who personally had very much... The other view which was this system makes no sense it's really socialist and she came in and realized that even in the sort of three years after she'd been elected um, uh, into government the NHS had managed to take on like thousands more managers and she wasn't entirely sure what they were doing and when I talked to Ken Clark who was one of her health ministers and later health secretary he was very clear that she wanted to go in his words the whole hog and privatize it completely and go to a private insurance system but she always freaked out and she always realised that the public would never forgive her for that, and that they didn't want it. So, you know, she she's often seen as being a conviction politician, but she was so pra- she was so pragmatic. And if you look at Charles Moore's biography of her, he describes her as saying repeatedly that the NHS was safe in conservative hands, and he thinks that she really believed that. And certainly, even on the eve of the internal market reforms she was panicking about them. In fact, even once she'd stopped being prime minister, she was still having these meetings with John Major where she was going to him saying, well, I'm quite worried about the internal market because she was always frightened of what the NHS could do to her politically. But that was the time when the Conservatives had the greatest chance of privatising the NHS or doing something new. They had huge majorities, they were rolling back the frontiers of the state and introducing the markets in different ways across so many different sectors, and they didn't. And I sort of think, I mean, if they didn't do it then, I, I don't know how much longer this secret conspiracy that people think there is to privatise it has got to run because it's, I mean, they, you know, they, they certainly haven't made much of an attempt of it in the past decade and a bit of, of Tory power that, that we're apparently coming to an end of now.
1: And Kate, what do you make of the Tories' relationship with the NHS and the public's? Do you think consent for the health service as it currently exists is wavering you've got a um a thread going at the moment on your twitter ranking public tributes birthday tributes to the nhs
2: I do have a thread going. Uh, they're getting entertaining very quickly, and we have days to go. Uh, so uh, shout out to listeners. If you see any excellent tributes to the NHS, and by excellent, I mean ridiculous and a bit creepy, please send them to me, uh, and I'll be sure to rank them. Um, look, the the Tories' relationship with the NHS is uh, one in which I think they are fundamentally held captive, um, not just to NHS officials, but to public opinion. Because no, I, I don't think support for the NHS model is wavering. Look, satisfaction is at record lows. I do think if you speak to people, you know it is increasingly dawning on them that perhaps it doesn't have to be this bad. They do look at other countries, particularly like Australia, where they know a lot of UK doctors are fleeing to because it's better pay, better hours, and you know that kind of opens our mind up from that um, you know USA versus NHS example that I gave earlier. But ultimately people are still extremely passionate and supportive of the NHS. And because the Toyers are always so concerned that they will be accused of privatizing it, they're much more afraid to do any kind of meaningful reform. As Isabel said, there is no evidence for that. I mean, the NHS at the moment is spending roughly 7.2% of the department's budget on on private uh, provisions. But you know, that includes things like beds, that includes things like cleaning. Like A lot of that isn't actually medicine to begin with. And that's roughly the same percentage as it was back in 2012. I mean, this just has not changed over successive Tory governments that we've had over the past 13 years. So, um, you know, there's no evidence for that, but that is, they're always afraid of the accusation. And I wonder if it's going to take a Labour government to come in, and so that we might actually be in a position to do some reform. But then the question is, what would the Labour Party be willing to do? And you have their shadow health secretary, Wes Streeting, who, um, you know, just this week was was on the radio, one of the few voices at the moment saying, please don't worship the NHS. Please don't go over the top with celebrations next week, guys, because it's not the envy of the world. He continues to talk in a way that suggests that real reform could be coming. And, you know, Isabel made a good point about activists earlier. If you really care about patients here, we have to talk about those outcomes. They're not very good. Um, But what would the Labour Party really be willing to do? How far would they be willing to go? We haven't had much indication yet that you would have significantly major reform certainly not compared to what the Tories are doing either so you know I I think I think the Tories really live in fear of public opinion around the NHS I think they they know that that could tank them so easily and it means that they actually can do less about it whether or not Labour are willing to do something remains to be seen.
0: Yeah I think it's um there's a really good quote that um, I've got from Alan Milburn in the book where he says that When it comes to the NHS, Labour has the permission to reform, but not the volition. And Conservatives have the volition to reform, but not the permission. And that's definitely been the case over its history. But I think we're now in the place where, as Kate says, now it does look like Labour does actually want to have both. You've got West Streeting talking about being the patient's champion, uh, actually examining the journey that a patient has through the NHS, rather than just thinking about how the system operates for the convenience of those working in it. And I think part of that is that Wes Streeting quite likes to fight um, and he quite likes annoying people uh, on the uh, the sort of hard left of his party by saying things like, I'm perfectly comfortable with the private sector. Um, but I think it's also because he spent a lot of time thinking quite deeply about this and talking to people, not just like Alan Milburn or indeed Alan Johnson, who I know he's, he's listened to a lot and is definitely very much worth listening to on the NHS, but also Sajid Javid I know has has advised um, West Streeting on NHS reform. Um, and so he's been talking to people across the, the political spectrum, really, on on what should be done with the health system that we have. Um, so that does give me some hope. What gives me less hope is that he has a leader who I'm not sure has quite got the stomach for just endlessly upsetting the, the left. Keir Starmer tends to have an approach where he gives one sop to the left And then makes a little sort of centre-right policy movement and then has to give another stop to the left rather than saying, no, this is my way or the highway. I think some on the left would disagree with that, but actually he does give quite a lot of concessions. Um, And so there will be a price for any big NHS reforms, uh, which has always been the case. You you look back at the foundation reforms, uh, foundation hospitals in the noughties and they brought tony blair's majority very close to falling apart and uh, alan milburn and then john reed had to just have endless i think it was about 300 meetings in total they had with mps labour mps just to try to persuade them to vote for this thing i mean some of those 300 were with the same mp over and over again you can imagine who some of the names were i think one of whom went on to lead the party But, uh, you know, there was huge opposition within the Labour Party. And actually, one of the people who was really anxious about it and caused a lot of fights was the Chancellor, Gordon Brown. So that, you know, there'll be all of those dynamics if there is a Labour government um, that that haven't gone away um, and that have, again, been there since the start of the NHS, the division in the party between purity and pragmatism.
1: Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Kate. Isabel's book, Fighting for Life, is out now. And thank you all very much for listening.